I am Captain Philip Beale, and I am listening to Gospel Tangents. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have a non-Mormon Columbus slash Lehi on the show. I'm excited to have uh, Philip Beale. He was the captain of the Phoenicia ship that traveled from the Middle East to America. And we're going to talk about not just those two voyages. He made two voyages on um, on the Phoenicia ship. Uh, this is a model of the ship here. And uh, he also made a, a, a an ancient travel on an Indonesian ship. So we'll talk a little bit about Thor Heyerdahl. And um, also, Philip wrote this book, Atlantic BC, where he talks about the voyage. And, you know, the funny thing is he, he had no plans to do... He, he didn't know anything about the Book of Mormon. And so it, it's pretty interesting that he traveled what we think might be Lehi's voyage to America. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have a modern Christopher Columbus <laughs> on the show. Could you tell us your name and where you are from? Hi, my name is Philip Beale. I'm captain of the Phoenician ship, or I was the captain of the Phoenician ship, and I'm from the United Kingdom. All right. Right outside London, or...? Yeah, I live down on the south coast uh, in, in Dorset, near, near Lulworth Cove and Poole. Okay. I've been there one time, and we went to Wimbledon and, and uh, Guernsey Island, I remember, so that's... Uh, that's really cool. So, you have a background in the uh, Royal Navy, is that right? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, as a, a school kid, I was interested in, in sailing and the, the history of, um, you know, the age of discovery and sailing ships. And uh, uh, the, there was a, a strong appeal of uh, joining the, the Navy as a seamanship officer. So, I went through the Dartmouth uh, Britannia Royal Naval College as a junior officer and then I served on a couple of ships in uh, at the time Her Majesty's Navy and uh, but then I sort of saw that uh, the kind of expeditions and voyages I wanted to do which was sort of in the in the mold of Contiki um, that Thor Heyerdahl did that I needed to to leave the Navy and pursue a sort of career that enabled me to undertake these historic uh, voyages. Okay. How long were you in the, do we call it the Royal Navy? Yeah, in the Royal Navy. No, I was only there for three years. Oh, okay. It was so I wasn't, a, I'm not a, a long-serving uh, officer of the Royal so Navy. You weren't like a submarine commander or anything like that? I can't claim that I was a submarine commander. I was uh, <laughs> on a couple of uh, uh, ships. Um, a destroyer and a fishery protection vessel. But then, as I say, I uh, realized, well, I asked my superiors, you know, when could I do my own expeditions? And they sort of said, well, if you're lucky in 10 years' time. But uh, I decided that there was another way to do it. So, uh, you know, we left on friendly terms. They were very good to me. But, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to do these uh, Contiki-style voyages that show how one culture you know, influence another through transoceanic uh, voyages. So that has been my ambition all along, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to realize the dream, as it were. Okay. So I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Conti, because I definitely wanted to talk about that. Um, 
You didn't ever serve in the Falkland Islands War or anything like that? <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. Actually, interestingly, I did my Admiralty interview board, um, at least the first one, um, just as the fleet were sailing to the Falkland Islands. So oh. that sort of, you know, I was... You just missed the, it. I just missed it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so were you like a... What, I mean, can you describe your role? Where you, you weren't like a captain on the ship or anything. You were a seaman, or how does that work? Um, so in the Navy, there are really four specializations. There's the executive branch, which is the seamanship branch, which controls the ship, and uh, the captain will always be a, a seamanship officer, of which uh, I was a, you know, I was in the seamanship specialization, which is navigation you know, man management, tactical sort of issues. But then there are marine engineers, weapon engineers, and then there's what we call supply and secretariat, which is all the logistics uh, and the like. So these four branches, uh, I was in the seamanship side, which is, as I say, the, um, really for, you know, you're either like officer of the watch or you're doing, you're the navigation officer at, at a junior level, um, ultimately, you you rise to take command of a ship, but uh, I never got that far. You never got that far. Okay, all right. Well, very cool. So, uh, so was Thor Heyerdahl really uh, kind of a motivator for you then? Yeah, he was an inspiration. Um, you know, I read his book as a sort of thirteen-year-old, and that helped influence my sort of thinking and why I wanted to do these voyages. And that, combined with an interest in history and the explorers like Sir Francis Drake and Sir, Fran uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, um, their exploits and reading about them sort of influenced me that I wanted to do something in the maritime world. Captain Cook? Captain Cook, yeah. And, uh, you know, what he did in the Pacific and the like, yeah, all of that interested me. Okay. So for those, of the, for those people who aren't familiar with Thor Heyerdahl, can you kind of explain what he did and uh, what his voyages were? Yeah, so Thor Heyerdahl, uh, he managed to be out in the Pacific uh, at the time, really, of the Second World War. And he observed that the Polynesians and some of the Polynesian islands, that amongst other things, that they had the sweet potato there. And the sweet potato was there when people like Captain Cook and, you know, European uh, sailors arrived in the Pacific for the first time. So as the sweet potato uh, originated from South America, Thor Heyerdahl put forward the theory that uh, there must have been, you know, ocean-going contact between South America and Easter Island uh, and, and the other Polynesian islands. And um, so he then built a balsa wood raft uh, and uh, sailed it um, from Ecuador across to uh, the Easter Island as a, as a, uh, to illustrate his, his theory. And he got a lot of criticism for it um, because it's certainly true that most of the Polynesian islands were populated, uh, as it happens, um, from the east, from you know, from Micronesia, and there were voyages, small voyages, across um, to to the Polynesian islands. But um, 
In fact, just in the last three years, DNA evidence has proved that at least one boatload of sailors arrived at uh, Easter Island and in Polynesia uh, from South America, and this is before the, um, you know, the European explorers. So he has actually been proved correct. His theory was right that uh, the sweet potato would have come from a voyage, but perhaps only one boatload of people. But there is now DNA evidence to support his theory. And he then went on to do other voyages around the world. Um, but his most successful and most meaningful was the Contiki one. It really captured the imagination of the, of the world. His other voyages were not so, um, so influential, shall we say. Okay, so he proved that South Americans were able to travel to the Polynesian Islands, Easter Island, those sort of things, and brought the sweet potato with them. Yes, that's right, and that has now been confirmed that that's true. Although the majority of the Pacific Islanders, as it happened, came um, from, 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 the from, 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 from the east, yes. Okay. Well, from, sorry, from the west, really, from, you know, Taiwan, Micronesia, oh, Melanesia, yeah. Uh, they're heading east, but yeah, okay. <laughs> Getting my directions mixed up. Okay, um, so that's interesting. So did he did he make a voyage back from the Polynesian Islands back to South America, or was it just a one-way trip? No, it was pretty much a one-way trip. In fact, uh, <laughs> it pretty much, you know, um, didn't quite arrive where he wanted it to, but uh, yeah, um, it was just a one-way trip. And indeed, it would have been a, a one-way trip for these people because, you know, a balsa wood raft would not have uh, been a very effective uh, vessel to sail in. Okay, because you don't have a lot of control, you're basically just bobbing around in the ocean? Yeah, virtually no control. They managed to use one of the balsa wood logs as a bit of a rudder to help steer it, but it was pretty, pretty basic. So Thor Heyerdahl was kind of one of your inspirations, and then, because I think your first ship was an Indonesian ship. Um, how did you get in, how did you learn about that, and, and tell us more about that story? So, um, in fact, before I went into the Navy, I studied at uh, Hull University, and there I did partly a course on Southeast Asian studies. And in that course, I learned about how the Indo-Malay people had gone from Borneo and Java across to Madagascar, and how could cultural influences from Indonesia ended up in East Africa, and also some of those influences uh, ended up in West Africa as well. And so I was aware of the th that theory, and um, then in, well, many years ago, but when I was about 21, I was able to travel through Indonesia, and I went to the Borobudur Temple in uh, central Java, and there they had about six reliefs of the shipping, you know, ancient shipping from the 8th century, and um, I sort of vowed as a sort of student that I would one day um, build a replica of that ship that was illustrated at Borobudur and sail it across to Madagascar and to West Africa to illustrate how they would have reached um, uh, Africa. And that, um, 
that I was able to do in 2003-2004. Okay. Um, so, at the time, people were like, are you crazy? Well, pr probably people think you're crazy for doing this kind of stuff, don't they? Sometimes, yeah, some people sort of say, yeah, they, you know, they wouldn't sail on a boat like I do for, you know, for all the tea in China, that kind of, <laughs> kind of expression. So, you know, you know, they say, yeah, yeah this, this is a bit crazy what you've done. But um, I think if it's in your blood and it's your passion um, and you persuade people to join a project like this, then uh, it becomes a reality. And so when do you think the Indonesians sailed to Africa? So the Indonesians almost certainly sailed to Africa between 500 AD and 800 AD. And this temple at Borobudur is dated about uh, 800 AD. Mm -hmm. And we know, we know they definitely did get across because the DNA uh, in Malagasy is partly an Asian DNA. And the, and the Malagasy language is an Asian language. It's the only Asian language uh, spoken in Africa. So we know of the correlation, both by language and DNA. So we know they definitely did get there, and we know fairly accurately when they, when they went across. Okay. And so was it a round trip, or was it also a one-way trip? It was really a one-way trip. Yeah, it would have been a one-way trip from Java across to Madagascar, and then maybe around the Cape. There was, it's fair to say, a route across the Indian Ocean to sort towards uh, Somalia and to back towards Oman and India in the ancient times from Indonesia, and it was called the Cinnamon Route. And uh, there was trade, uh, because cinnamon was, well, the only place cinnamon was found in the ancient world was uh, in Indonesia, and there are records saying, you know, that the Romans got access to cinnamon. So there was this cinnamon route, but that wasn't what I was trying to do, although some people claimed that's what, what I was trying to do, but I wasn't. I was much more focused on the, the Malagasy connection. Ma no, that sounds a lot like Madagascar. Is, is that the same word? Or? Yeah, it's, so Madagascar is the island. Malagasy is the language. The Malagasy. Um, the Madagascan people speak, yeah. Okay. Which, you know, is a very interesting language because it's it's a mixture of the Indo-Malay words, Indonesian words, uh, Arabic words, because Arabic traders came down from Oman to the north of Madagascar, and then there's African words, the, the Bantu uh, language um, uh, as well. So you've got a great mixture of, it's a very colourful language. Very, very cool. Um, and so this original route happened in 500 AD, is that what you said? Yes, yeah. Um, and it was, you think it was just a one-way trip? Why, yes, why I think Why would so. they be interested in doing a one-way trip? So we know that uh, the, one of the voyages that were taken, there is um, a, 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 a stone carving that they found in Borneo, for the uh, Burrito tribe that basically tells of a war and that these people have to leave uh, this region of Borneo because their livelihoods were under threat. So they were le almost certainly one of the voyages that happened 
was because the people felt unwelcome and they they were refugees if you like they had oh. to they had to flee um, so that was certainly the, I think the inspiration for one of the voyages uh, for the um, oh so they were fleeing persecution they were fleeing persecution that's right okay. and then some people may have got there by by accident or there may not have been enough food and uh, they decided to again to, to flee and to, to look for new lands okay so I know it seems like at least when I was in school a lot of times they would say well ancient seafarers would always kind of hug the coastline um, but this sounds like or correct me if I'm wrong were you hugging the coastline or were you taking an open route through the ocean t from Indonesia to Africa um, we were ocean going we were going straight across the ocean using you know the trade winds that blow from the east to the west so we were just uh, you know trading uh, you know also sailing by by the trade winds across the ocean so we were we certainly weren't hugging the land although if there ever was a, a, a return journey because the prevailing winds would have been against them they would have had to go along the sort of northern coast and hug the coast back um, oh, okay. that way but we were we were definitely sort of ocean going sailing okay because so because the winds go from east to west you can you can travel in the open ocean but going west to east you're probably going to hug the coastline is that right yeah that's right it'd be almost impossible to sail against the trade winds okay. even you know modern yachts that have triangular sails and can sail closer to the wind which you know virtually impossible to go against the trade winds uh, in in any sort of meaningful way but um you can go around this, you know, the, these are sort of convectional sort of currents and winds, if you like. But if you get to the north of them, you can, you know, you can get back, as it, if you like. But uh, not, not an easy journey to make. Okay. So, uh, so you did this journey. Remind me again what year that was. So we set off in August 2003. Okay. And we arrived in Ghana in West Africa in uh, February 2004. Okay, so how long was those six months? Yeah, roughly about six months. Wow. Yeah. Um, how big was your crew? We had about fourteen people at any one time, and it was a mixed crew. We had generally half Indonesian crew, half international, um, uh, both and different religions. Uh, we had uh, a few ladies on board as well as gents. And uh, it was, yeah, quite a sort of United Nations, if you like, of different peoples, different cultures, different religions. And so, as I recall, uh, it seems like you found out that there was probably an even earlier voyage and that you wanted to replicate that. Is that right? After your Indonesian voyage? Yes, that's right. So what happened was when we got to Cape Town, there was an Indian professor who sort of, I think, for a bit of publicity, uh, apparently he's quite outspoken, he sort of said, Indonesian ship, you know, a forgery, uh, the Indians got to Africa before the Indonesians. Now, I had never said that the Indonesians had got to Africa first, just that I was trying to show that there was Indo-Malay influence on Africa. So I then started to look at, well, who were the first people to trade with Africa? And uh, I came across the quote that Herodotus had said that he had been told 
and he was writing in 450 BC. He'd been told that in 600 BC, Phoenician mariners made the first circumnavigation of Africa on the sponsorship, if you like, of Pharaoh Nico, who was the pharaoh, Egyptian pharaoh, uh, ruling around 600 BC. So I was unable to respond, well, I don't think the, in the Indians were the first. You know, history records that it was the Phoenicians. And when I started looking at that, then I was sort of encouraged to um, actually, you know, make that my next area of interest and voyage. And, you know, here we are sort of 17 years later still talking about the Phoenicians. So it's been an amazing journey, an amazing project. Okay, so when I think of Phoenicians, and maybe I'm just uh, uneducated, whatever, I always think of Greece or Greeks, or like they were pre-Greeks. Is that is that a true... Yeah, they were the the dominant. The Phoenicians were the dominant sort of traders and city states uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, from sort of Tyre in the south, uh, Sidon, uh, Beirut, Byblos, and Arados or Arwad uh, in modern day Syria, and they were the competition for the Greeks. Now. The Phoenicians were several hundred years ahead of them in terms of sailing expertise. And, and the Greeks, you know, acknowledged, acknowledged that, that uh, the Phoenicians had the fastest ships, the strongest ships, and they were the best sailors. But there was that, you know, rivalry between them. And there were clearly some, you know, wars between uh, the Greeks and, and various Phoenician factions fighting you know, over resources and the like. So they were competitive. Okay, so they were competitive with the Greeks because I guess the Greeks named them the Phoenicians. That's not what they called themselves? That's correct. So the Greeks named them, you know, the Phoenicians or Phoenicians from uh, or, the, or the Purple Empire, if you like. So the, they sort of classified. I think the Greeks were the first to sort of pigeonhole the Phoenicians. But the Phoenicians were never... A single nation. They were individual city-states. So there were the Sidonians, the Tyronians. They were, you know, um, Arwadians, if you like. They were not, and, and each city-state had its own sort of uh, culture. They had their own amphora and different styles. But there were some some common characteristics. But they were never actually a, a nation as such. Okay, so they weren't really a nation. They were, because it sounds like they were in the same basic area as what we would call the Canaanites or the Israelites, right? Is there any difference between the Phoenicians, the Canaanites, and the Israelites? So the Canaanites were the former Phoenicians, if you like. So some uh, academics, historians, would say actually the Phoenicians are no different from the Canaanites. They were, so if you might say the Canaanites you know, generally started, say, maybe around 2200 BC up until, say, 1200 BC. And then we sort of say there was a Phoenician era from 1200 BC to 146 BC when the Romans finished them off at Carthage in modern day Tunisia. But as I say, some academics think it was pretty much a continuous uh, sort of 
development of so the, these people. The Canaanites became Canaan. Phoenicians and Absolutely. then became Israelites. Well, Can we say that? I don't. I'm not sure, and I'm not qualified to really comment on the Israelites. But certainly, I know that some academics sort of, you know, say you sh- we shouldn't really be distinguishing between the Canaanites and the Phoenicians. They were basically the same peoples. See, that's funny because I've always heard that the Canaanites and the Israelites were the same people. <laughs> right. Well, as I say, I'm not. I, I don't really have the knowledge about the you know the Israelites and the Canaanites, but I do know this. Um, you know, the chronology, if you like, of the Canaanites to the Phoenicians. And I say, some academics just say, well, they were really the same people. There wasn't any, any, you know, they might have evolved to become more distinctive. So from 1200 BC, of course, the Phoenicians suddenly started to do much more trade because they developed these strong ships to trade. They started trading metals. They made, you know, thousands of ceramic pots and amphoras which they exported all over the Mediterranean filled with olive oil and wine and in return they bought you know industrial quantities of metals back to the Middle East so um, there was a sort of cultural shift but in terms of actual people their you know their ancestors were the Canaanites okay because I've been trying to do a little bit of research because it looks like the the Phoenicians were along Lebanon, Israel, Syria area. Uh, they were also along North Africa. Um, Carthage, of course, was a huge city for them. Which is is that in Tunisia? Is that right? Yes, yes. And then um, did they did they get into Greece and Italy that area as well? I was trying to I couldn't determine that. So the Phoenicians did get up towards Athens. So. There is the the story of Cadmus and uh, Europa, and uh, there was an alliance uh, which was cemented with Athens. So the Aegean and the eastern Mediterranean, the Levant, was a sort of common trading cultural area, you you could argue. But the real innovation in terms of the the expansion of the Phoenicians across the, the, the Mediterranean comes with the the legend that uh, the daughter of the king of Tyre, uh, Queen Dido, uh, having fallen out with her father, sailed with seven or eight sea captains to Cyprus and then found, went on to found Carthage and established Carthage as uh, a, a place of commerce and the like. And of course, over time, so this was, we're talking here, sort of 7th, 8th century, when Carthage actually may have been founded even earlier than that, but uh, BC or AD? Uh, BC, and then by 300 BC, 200 BC, Carthage had become so powerful economically that it was a thorn in the side of of the Romans, and the Romans, you know, decided, you know, Carthage must be destroyed. The Carthaginians, Hannibal. You know, tried to attack Rome by taking his, you know, elephants over the Alps, and could have easily conquered Rome, but but held off from doing that. And then, um, after sort of three Punic Wars and a hundred years, um, the Romans finally sacked Carthage, and Carthage was completely destroyed. But not before 
you know, Phoenician or Carthaginian influence had certainly dominated large areas of Sicily and places throughout the uh, Mediterranean, like Marbella, Gibraltar, Cadiz. Okay, so it sounds like the Phoenicians were a lot more expansive than just the Israelites uh, who, who kind of just stayed in the Israel area. Is that safe to uh, say? Totally. So the Phoenicians were really the first global traders. You know, they traded uh, from the Red Sea with Asia, they traded with Africa, and particularly North Africa, and with Europe. So they were trading on three continents. And if it's true that they also managed to reach uh, the Americas, then maybe they traded on four continents. But they were, yeah, complete, in that sense, they were completely different from the Canaanites. They were adventurers, they were traders, they were um, looking for new opportunities in, in trade all of, all of the time and bringing their culture with them. Okay, and you mentioned America. I want to get into that in just a minute. Okay, so so you had read that Herodotus had said 150 years earlier in 600 BC that the Canaanites had traveled around Africa. Is that right? Yep, the Phoenician mariners had had basically organized an expedition to circumnavigate Africa, and it took them three years to complete the voyage. Okay, and so you wanted to replicate this voyage. Yes. And you did it in less than three years, though, I'm guessing. Uh, two, well, it still took a long time, two years and two months. Oh, did it take that long? Yes. Oh. And, uh, yeah. And so where did you take off from as you tried to circumnavigate Africa? So we started from Syria. We went through the Suez Canal. Now, you may sort of wonder about that Suez Canal. But the current Suez Canal is the third Suez Canal. And in oh, the really? time of Pharaoh Nico, he built the first Suez Canal. Now, to be fair, he didn't finish it, but there would have been a, probably about a 10-kilometer gap where they would have pulled boats through, uh, th through the land part of it that wasn't finished. But um, getting through the... Um, you know, the Suez area... From the, So you, did you start in, like, Jerusalem and then go through the Suez Canal, or...? Uh, we started from Arwad in Syria. We went down to Port Suez and then through. Okay, down through the Red Sea. Through the Red Sea. And uh, we had a few problems uh, in the Red Sea. We went th to the Yemen, to Hodaida and Aden, and then to Salalah in the south of Oman. Okay. Before taking on the pirates in the Indian Ocean and off the coast of uh, Somalia and the Horn of Africa. So we were doing this in, uh, by this time we were 2009 at the height of the you know, Somali, uh, Somali pirates, pirates were going crazy, yeah. So you, you said you took them on, you tried to avoid them, right? Or we tried to avoid them. So we had satellite communications and email and every day we would get a report of where the latest attacks were happening and because of those pirate attacks we kept on having to sail uh, further um, uh, to the west uh, as, as best we could to avoid those attacks. Oh, wow. And this is just a wooden boat. Just a wooden boat, that's right, yes. And you didn't have a lot of cannons or anything to defend yourself? No, all we had was like a, what's called an LRAD, which is a, 
an electronic, uh, just an incredibly large speaker that if we were attacked by a group of pirates, we could play this sort of ear-splitting noise at them to disable them. Oh. But, uh, oh, because we'd been advised to, to get this piece of equipment, but we tried it out once on a, on a friendly yacht and uh, we asked them, well, could you hear this? You know, was it painful or whatever? And they said, oh, well, all we heard was a little tweeting. <laughs> so it, it probably wouldn't have been much good. <laughs> but we didn't. We were advised not to take any guns and stuff. I said, "Look, you know, if you're going to take guns, you've got to need. You've got to want to to use them and be prepared to use them." And and you know, we weren't in that mold, should we say? Okay, so you went down the Red Sea. You headed east a little bit to go around the Somali pirates, and then you had to get in the open ocean to go around Somalia. Basically, that's right. Yes. So we ended up in Mayotte uh, in the Comoros Islands, just north of Madagascar, and then we went back towards the coast to Mozambique and down around the South African coast towards uh, Cape Town. Okay, and that was where you hit some pretty good storms, I hear. Is that right? Yeah, we, well, um, we had a storm, a bit, of, a bit of a storm, but it was just a strong wind off Cape of Good Hope. But didn't it blow you backwards? Yeah, it, there was a day when the wind changed against us and uh, just started to blow us backwards. But we managed to uh, rig the sail in such a way that we just stayed in position. But we were going, yeah, we were going backwards, but we were f sort of facing the right way, if you like. And we were going back at about one knot. Um, so over like 18 hours, we went back about 20 odd miles. But, uh, and then when the wind changed back to its normal sort of position, we just carried on. So, but that, I wouldn't actually describe it as a storm. It was just a, you know, change of wind direction, really. Oh, because uh, Vera made it sound a little bit more dangerous than you're making it sound. Well, I think <laughs> so. Vera is referring, I think, to when we actually got to the Cape, and when we got to the Cape, um, the winds were stronger, and there were probably 30, 35 knots. And as we were going around the Cape, on the night that we were doing it, our sails split in two. Okay. And then, because we had no, uh, you know, momentum and sail, you know, those winds were quite, uh, and the seas were quite rough, the boat was rocking around and probably, you know, that would have been what she's referring to. So that was a, a tricky time. And we had, you know, limited time to take down the, the boom or the yard with the, the shredded sail, taking that down on deck, putting a new boom in place and securing another sail to it. So we had a what we call a storm sail and we had to fix that and then hoist the new boom to, to the halyard and then hoist it up. All of that took about 45 minutes whilst the ship was rocking around rather uncomfortably as we were, you know, I don't know, eight or ten miles off the... Cape of Good Hope. So that was a bit, yeah, a bit stressful. And I think uh, uh, I... Vera tells a better story than you do, I got to say. <laughs> okay. Well, the reason I probably don't worry about it too much because I was focused on the plan to sort it all out and right. get the crew get the crew working and explaining if what... I was on a ship, I'd want you to be in charge. I can tell. So I, I was telling the guys, that, you know, luckily I had 
I was on deck when it happened, which was just coincidence. I just walked on deck and I looked up and the sail just split in front of my eyes. Oh, wow. But then I was able to go down to below. I think that would have caused me to panic. W- wake everybody up. So all hands on deck, all hands on deck. And then I had a couple of minutes to collect my thoughts. And then I was able to brief the team. Okay, guys, this is what we got to do. First thing, get that boom down on deck. Take it off. Hold the halyard. Don't let the halyard go, otherwise we'll, we'll never get anywhere. And uh, put the new boom on it and uh, attach the, new, the, the storm sail to it and, and get it up as quickly as we can. So I was always focusing on that. I wasn't worrying. I wasn't thinking we're going to sink or not. I just knew we had to get on with the task. So whereas other people... Well, of course, Vera was on the helm. So all in a sense, what she was doing was... You know, she had to stay there. She would have been worrying, like, God, is this going to work? So she was probably in a much more exposed position, if you like, because if you're working at a project, you don't sort of, you're just focused on that. Whereas she had time to think about, well, what if they don't manage to get the the sail up and get going again? Well, I think I would have panicked when I saw the sail rip. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's one of those things you learn. Um, as a yacht master or, or captain, that uh, or I, I believe it's a very important thing to do is when you've got a challenge like that, you need to um, give a very clear plan or brief to the team. If you if you're clear and you tell the guys and ladies what you want them to do, and they understand it, then there's a very good chance they'll actually do what you want. But if you don't explain it to them and, and well, some people know what to do and some people don't. It's a recipe for disaster. So, um, you know, I always try to give a good plan, an explanation of what we're going to do. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the uh, airplane that a uh, couple of ducks or uh, geese knocked out both engines and Captain Sullenberger landed it on the Hudson. We were so glad he was so cool-headed. <laughs> you sound like Captain Sullenberger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, obviously he was a hero. I mean, that to, to do that, to have the presence of mind, to calmly think, actually, I can't land in these other airports. We're not high enough up, but we can just about land in the Hudson. And I think it was just about, wasn't it, that he yeah. missed the, the bridges and stuff. Right. So, yeah, you just got to be calm and and stick to the plan as it were or make a plan quickly i'm glad they had you on on board i i would have been very nervous (laughs) all right so so uh so you had those rough winds around the uh, cape town south africa what happened next so we then um made our way um towards santalina and the ascension islands because one of the challenges with sort of modern day sort of replica ship sailing is that you know we have new challenges that weren't really there in the ancient times so in the Nile Delta there was quite a lot of and there still is quite a lot of piracy there so we wanted to cut the corner so we cut the corner and 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 and, and sailed to the, the Ascension Islands well first of all Santalina and then the Ascension Islands which are pretty much in the middle of that southern part of the Atlantic and uh, from there we wanted to get uh, to the Azores but we have this challenge of again easterly winds and currents blowing across 
the Atlantic. So as we left the Ascension Islands, we got up to the equator, these uh, trade winds were pushing us right across the Atlantic. In fact, more than I thought they would. I mean, I had allowed about 60 days, you know, two months to sail that part up to the Azores. But it actually took us 82 days of sailing from the Ascension Islands up to the Azores. And we came within about 600 miles of the Florida coast. So we got really close because we were trying, I was trying my very best to turn the ship, but we were sort of waiting for um, the, the, the currents and the Gulf Stream to take us back towards the Mediterranean and towards the north of Europe. But uh, so that was, that was challenging because, uh, you know, although we took uh, probably about, uh, you know, three tons of water and lots of dried food and we can fish, um, we hadn't uh, expected to be out in the, in the ocean for that long. So we had to ration the water and uh, there was an, undoubtedly there were some parents of the crew members that were getting quite concerned that we were bobbing around in the middle of the Atlantic thinking that, you know, was this a, a, you know, a foolhardy expedition as opposed to one that was, you know, uh, planned and prepared. So. So you, so you ended up going a lot closer to Florida than you were expecting just because that's the way the winds took you and the currents? Yeah, totally. Um, as I say, I knew we would get pushed across quite a way, but I had not envisaged that we'd get pushed so far, so close to, to for Florida. I knew we would get pushed. I, as I say, I had estimated it would take a couple of months, but I thought we'd better... You know, you can see from the wind charts that, the, you know, the, the winds do turn and, and change direction. Um, but it took certainly longer than I thought, and it was harder. Um, but we could only turn an old-style an old style ship uh, fairly gradually. We, we don't have, you know, triangular sails that can point the boat into the wind. You have to have the wind on the beam or, or, or astern of you, so you sort of have to wait. So that's why we got pushed Oh. Right, right across the Atlantic. Yeah. Okay. So then you ended up sailing east again, and and so you basically did circumnavigate Africa, kind of replicating the old Herodotus story. Is that right? Yes, that's right. We we showed it could be done, and of course, you know, they might have stayed a little bit closer to the coast than than we did. But as I say, there were other factors like piracy that meant we went further out. But nonetheless, you. Nobody could sail up the coast of West Africa because, as I say, the winds, the northeast winds and trade currents push you out into the Atlantic. So um, that's, uh, it was always going to be that way. Okay. And so how, long, so how long did it take you to circumnavigate Africa in total then, Ty? So it took us two years and two months. Two years? You were on a ship for two straight years? Uh, there was a break uh, of about five or six months uh, in, in the Yemen, where we were, we missed, because of our problems with sorting out the rudder, we missed the northeast uh, monsoon winds from Oman to take us down towards uh, Mozambique and Dar es Salaam. So we then had to wait effectively six months to the next, because they, they alternate every six months. Oh, so wow. we missed them, so we just had to wait out whilst the, the Southwest monsoon blew, 
and then we came back. So I, I, I went home, I found a couple of guys to look after the boat in Aden Harbour, and then I came back in October um, of 2009, and the crew reassembled, and uh, we started again, effectively, having had that break. So I wasn't on board for all of those two years, but the actual expedition took two years and two months. Oh, I see. But then we did spend the next year on the boat. So, you know, we did spend, I did spend a year on the boat. So. Holy cow, that's a long time. <laughs> I can't imagine. You know, that brings up <laughs> other things like, uh, you know, just using the bathroom. It's not like, I mean, how, how did that work? <laughs> well... Yeah, so we have sort of like this, uh, what we call the heads, the bathroom, uh -huh. um, which is just a, a box that's attached to the side of the, the ship. And you have to climb out over the railing of the ship to sit on the box and, um, and, and do your business there, as it were. Wow. The, the good thing about that is um, it's very easy to clean and keep tidy. If you've got an internal one, you've got you know, all the cleaning and so whereas you can just and chuck it smells a, too, right? And it smells. You can just chuck a bucket of salt water over this outside one and, and that's good. But you know, it, it does probably frighten some people to be doing that in, in, in big seas. In fact, I was reminded only um, yesterday from a crew member, he said, Do you remember when we, we woke up and the the, the heads had fallen off the boat. Oh. So as we were going up towards Salala, one morning we woke up and there was no heads there and it had just fallen off. I mean, thank goodness there wasn't anybody on the <laughs> on the pot at the time it fell off. I mean, it would have been a disaster. Wow. So um, we don't know why it fell off, but we had a couple of Indonesian um, shipbuilders on board and within a few hours, um, my friend Dearman had made a, a new, tougher... Um, toilet. So, uh. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So, so roughly, it took so from Solala, it took you basically sixteen months to circumnavigate Africa. Is that right? Yeah, uh, it took about a year, actually. Yeah, a year. A year. Yeah. Okay. So, we um, we left in sort of yeah mid October, and by the end of October, uh, two thousand ten, we had managed to get back to. Um, to the Lebanon and Syria. Okay, okay. And so, um, so then you did a second voyage. What was the purpose of the second voyage? So having, you know, learned more and more about the, the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians uh, over the years, uh, I began to think, well, these were great sailors. I mean, the Phoenicians and Carthaginians, you know, they were the first recorded sailors in the Atlantic. So there's, they had two admirals, Admiral Himilco, who did an expedition to the you know, northern Europe, and then Admiral Haino did a voyage down the West African coast, possibly as far as Cameroon. And these were recorded in history. And then there's these pieces of information, like that uh, Strabo, for example, writing in the histories, you know, he's the, the considered the sort of the father of, you know, modern geography. He said that the Phoenicians had 300 trading settlements down the eastern Atlantic coast from Iberia all the way down probably as far as Senegal. 
And when you start putting all this information together, you realize there was a lot of activity going on in the Atlantic. And I started to think, well, actually, and I wasn't the first to think this. I mean, you know, for over 100 years, people have thought that maybe the Phoenicians were the, the first ancient sailors to reach the Americas and the New World before Columbus, before the Vikings. So I then put together this expedition, the Phoenicians before Columbus expedition, to illustrate how the Phoenicians could have reached the New World. Okay. And so who who were some of the people that were saying that they reached the New World? I mean, I'm not familiar with that. Well, there are people who have written about this. I think... Um, the best proponent of the theory is um, a mathematics professor from from Italy uh, called uh, Lucio uh, Russo, and he's written a book, uh, The Forgotten America, and he's a, a historical scientist, if you like. So he's uh, and as a mathematician, he's he's researched a lot of information about. Uh, the distances involved, and he's gone right back to the some of the ancient texts, so like uh, Ptolemy and Marinus of Tyre, and their calculations, and he has can sort of deduced, if you like, that the ancients knew not just of the Canary Islands, which are just only offshore of Africa, you know, the African mainland, that they knew of islands much further away, three and a half thousand miles um, Like Haiti to, to and the west. Cuba and things like that? Yes, like the Caribbean, like the Antilles Islands and stuff. And he is convinced that the ancients knew a lot more uh, about the Caribbean and uh, he also uses the example of uh, Pythias of Marseille and said he got, uh, in the ancient times, 3rd century BC, he got as far as Greenland, for example. So, and so for me, he is the best proponent of what uh, uh, I am trying to convey. And he's, so, he's who the, got to Greenland? Who were the people? The Canaanite uh, or the? No, there was a. Um, actually, he's a Greek, believe it or not. He's a, a Greek guy, having sort of downplayed the role of the Greeks. He was a Greek explorer very methodical, but he's known as uh, Pythias uh, of Marseille for, for some reason. And he did an expedition, and in his expedition records, he records the fact that uh, the sun doesn't stop uh, shining and that because he got so far north and that there was a sea of ice and that he met these indigenous people, and he called the people of fool. Uh, and when you then analyse, you know, the distances involved and where he was going, um, actually, uh, Professor uh, Russo uh, concludes that he was almost certainly talking about having reached Greenland in his uh, expedition. And this is in 300 BC? This is, yeah, 3rd century BC. Yes. Okay, okay. So, uh, okay, so, so, you, busy, yeah. so you took a trip across the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar and then ended up in Florida? Correct, yes. Uh, not a direct, direct route. We went down from Cadiz 
down the coast of Africa to Mogador or Essaouira in Morocco, which was one of the great Phoenician ports or Carthaginian ports where they traded metals and African goods and the like, okay. and, and, and metals. And then uh, we hopped across to the Canary Islands, which were known uh, to the Phoenicians, uh, and there's, there's evidence for that. And from there, we just let the ship pretty much find its way across the Atlantic, and we ended up in the Dominican Republic. And uh, from there, we, we wanted to sort of bring this expedition to the attention of America, and we then made our way up to, um, to Florida. Okay, how long did that take? So that took uh, just over five months. Oh, so that was a lot faster. A lot faster, relatively simple, yeah. Oh wow! So that was that was the easy, much easier route to go then. Yes, because it's you know the the Gulf Stream. It's like a conveyor belt, yeah. so it'd been relatively easy for the Phoenicians, who you know had clearly all these trading settlements, for them to get out into the Atlantic and be blown across in one way or another to the Caribbean. And so, what was the purpose of going across the Mediterranean and, and taking the route you did to? The Dominican Republic and Florida? So, sort of twofold, really. We wanted to start the expedition in Carthage because all of these big expeditions historically probably would have started from Carthage. Okay. Um, that was, you know, the power in the, the Western Mediterranean. And certainly the Tunisian authorities and uh, people really appreciated the fact that we wanted to start our expedition there. And then these other ports we went to before we sat across the, the Atlantic, they were great Phoenician states and had a lot of uh, culture and history. So we wanted to acknowledge that. And then it was a question of um, leaving from uh, the Canary Islands and going across. But we were trying to show that a Phoenician ship would have made relatively light work of getting across the Atlantic. That was the primary aim. So you ended up in Florida now, because you said uh, a while back that you thought there was evidence that the Phoenicians might have traded in America. Do, do we have any evidence that they traded in, in North America? We don't have... Um, really specific information that they did, but there are sort of clues, if you like, and things which need further research. Mm -hmm. um, so, but in some of these uh, texts that uh, we're aware of, there are a number of writers, ancient writers, who said they met sailors who had returned from a 40-day voyage across the Atlantic. So people like Seneca, Sabosis, these uh, ancient writers, they document this, that they have met sailors who've done uh, a voyage lasting a similar amount of time as it took Columbus to get across the Atlantic and the same similar time that it took us to get across there. So there are things like that, but then there are also some interesting pieces of other evidence. So, for example, <coughs> excuse me, the, the Cherokee, for example... Um, as an you know, indigenous Indian tribe, they have uh, what we call like the Middle Eastern DNA in in their uh, in, in their yeah in, in their DNA. So 
And the question is, how did that DNA get into an indigenous Indian tribe? And a lot of Indian tribes believe they came from the east across, you know, the Great Salt uh, or, you know, the Great Ocean sort of thing. So, and, and there are various other bits of information as well. So right now I'd say, you know, there's not an absolute silver bullet that proves it emphatically. We don't have a sweet potato or something like that. <laughs> we don't have a sweet potato. We don't have, um, like, the Viking settlement in Newfoundland, right. which has been documented and authenticated by the academics. But the thing to understand is that every week, archaeologists and science are discovering new new information. I mean, the, 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 the increase in the amount of knowledge we have has been, you know, exponentially increased all the time. And it's my belief that over the next, who knows how long, maybe 10, 20 years, the evidence we need will, will emerge. But we haven't you know, there's lots of anecdotal bits and pieces, but I wouldn't say we've got emphatic proof right now. Okay. So you came... Um, oh, by the way, when was this trip from Carthage to Florida? So we left Carthage on the 28th of September 2019, and we arrived in Florida on the 4th of February 2020. Okay just in time to be locked down by COVID. By COVID. Oh, so you just barely beat COVID. <laughs> barely <laughs> beat COVID, here. which was a, a little bit of a problem because obviously we wanted to celebrate and publicize what, we've, what we had done. But COVID it meant that all the crew had to go home as quickly as possible and we weren't really able to get our story out as we would have liked. Okay. So in a way, that's partly why we're doing it now, that we've now got... Uh, you know, it's all been documented with a new book, Atlantic BC, which, um, you know, viewers can find at AtlanticBC.net on the internet. And we're able to publicize it. So that's partly why it's, you know, it's good to talk to you about, um, you know, this great story and to bring it to people's attention. Yeah. So, um, so you landed in Florida February, COVID locks down everything in March. Um, were you planning on sailing back to... Um, Carthage on uh, before COVID hit was that the original plan? No, it wasn't really the plan to sail it back to Carthage. Although, had had the Tunisian authorities or the Moroccan or um, the authorities in Cadiz expressed an interest in having the Phoenicia as a potential museum exhibit, then we would have worked out a way either by sailing or transporting the ship back to those places. But COVID really put pay to any sort of aspirations to, down, yeah. Yeah, to, you know, to think about you know, how important this vessel could be as a tourist attraction and the like. So all of those ideas and plans fell apart and the Phoenicia was left here in, in Florida for, you know, the last couple of years. And then a hurricane hit, apparently. Is yeah, that that's, that's not quite true, actually. Okay. But uh, it's sort of uh, poetic license, I think. So, but what happened was we, um, the, elect, the, the vessel was, was moored in um, Fort Lauderdale. Okay. And, um, you know, clearly it takes on quite a bit of water every day. So there's an electric bilge pump that's pumping out the water on a, on a sort of timer. And the, uh, 
the fuse went and the electricity failed. The, the boat then filled up with water. Oh, no. And uh, the, the person who was overseeing it didn't, didn't notice until it was till it sort of sunk. So the boat sunk, but luckily um, it was only in five foot of water. So oh. it just went to the bottom of, a, of, the, of this one of these sort of canals in um, Fort Lauderdale. So the, the deck was not underwater, but everything else was. So all, you know, the clothing and equipment, the, you know, the, the, the crew and everything was underwater. And I came back after that incident in June last year and literally put tons of soggy, wet clothes and rubbish into a dumpster to, to sort of clean it all out. And um, so, yeah, that's what actually sort of happened. Um, okay. It's, uh, it, it's one of those unfortunate things that the, um, the electricity supply failed. And, uh, you know, luckily there was no, you know, I mean, within... So that was the hurricane? <laughs> that was the hurricane. And within 48 hours, we'd had the boat pumped out and refloated and stuff. So okay. it wasn't underwater for long, but um, it was, um, that was the hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just a normal storm. It wasn't like a tropical storm. Just a normal storm. The boat had historically come close to sinking in that similar kind of thing twice, but it never, the pumps had failed and the water was rising, but we managed to get there in time. In oh. this case... The, they hadn't noticed that the, you know, it started to sink. So. But the, the fortunate thing was, as I say, it was only in five foot of water, so it actually couldn't really sink that far. <laughs> it wasn't like it was completely underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. So, uh, so originally the plan was you were going to ship it back to a museum in England, is that right? Yeah, wherever it was going to be. We didn't have a firm offer, but there were, there were interested people. There were people who had interest in the Lebanon that wanted it. Um, there's potentially interest in Syria. Um, but, as I say, COVID pretty much put everything yeah. on hold. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Well, because it sounds like they had already cut up the ship and sent part of it to England or something. Is that right? Yeah, so what happened was um, I came out in June... Uh, 21, uh, cleaned up the ship, sort of tried to get it looking reasonable after this uh, episode of uh, it being flooded. And then I approached virtually all of the North American maritime museums and with a view to trying to find a home for it. And, and I also went back to some of the European candidates as well. And, uh, you know, everyone said, oh, it's a great project, it's wonderful what you've done, but, you know, our museum is either full or we don't really have an international mandate or it doesn't really fit with what we, we're trying to do at our museum and I could get really very little interest. So what I decided to do then was say, OK, well, COVID's still with us. Nobody's really thinking in a positive sort of mindset at the moment, but, but they will in due course. So I decided we'd cut the boat up, put it in two containers. I would ship that back to the UK. And then when uh, there was interest and somebody said, yeah, we want the Phoenician ship, we could just ship it to wherever and it could be reassembled and, uh, and restored. Because you, know, you have to remember, I was paying you know, thousands of dollars every month for birthing, maintenance, insurance, um, 
and I just had to sort of stop it and say, look, you know, because it, I mean, it had already been two years longer than I thought it should have been, you know. Right. So um, I took that decision and um, then the first container had been loaded and shipped in December 2000, last year, 2021. And then uh, the Heartland Research Group came forward and said, we are interested, we'd like to acquire the ship. And then I explained, well, half of it's already on its way back to the UK, but you can have the, the other half and then we can send the other bit back uh, later. And that's what we've done. And now there is, you know, this great plan to have a Phoenician ship museum at Montrose on the Mississippi, uh, opposite Nauvoo. And um, it's, it's going great guns. So, it, you know, it's a complicated story, but it's, uh, we finally got there. We finally got a home for Phoenicia which is going to be fantastic. And so explain why the Heartland Research Group would be interested in your ship. Because so, we haven't talked about that at all yet. No, that's right. So as you're you know, well aware, you know, there are two um, LDS uh, prophets, if you like. Uh, there's the prophet Lehi, uh, who is believed to have made a voyage from Salala um, to... Uh, the promised land to, to, to America and by complete coincidence because I didn't know this from where I was standing but the first voyage that I explained that we came within 600 miles of Florida virtually replicates one of the theories of the voyage of Lehigh so that was already relevant and then, yeah, you yeah. could have easily kept going on to Florida, right? But you were trying to get back to Africa. We could easily have gone to Florida. It would have been the easiest thing in the world. But my mandate was to circumnavigate Africa, not to come to Florida. So I resisted that and tried to, as I said, to turn the boat as right. best I could. And it would have been faster to go to Florida, probably. Uh, totally faster. And right. we'd have had much... Uh, much more fun, I'm sure, if it had gone to Florida <laughs> than trying to get to the Azores. But, uh, you know, that was, the, you know, as I say, the mandate. But then, again, the second voyage, which we've sort of done relatively recently, the Phoenicians before Columbus, as it so happened, that has replicated the, the second uh, voyage, if you like, or prophet uh, Mulex uh, proposed, or... Uh, alleged voyage from the Mediterranean across the Atlantic, uh, again to, to the Americas, and therefore that's got you know significance to the LDS community because the boat has effectively replicated you know two of the theories that uh, LDS followers you know hold dear to their hearts. Mm -hmm. So that's why the Heartland Research Group was so keen to acquire the Phoenicia. You know, understanding it was looking for a home, and it's all, as I say, come together in, in a very nice way. Well, now Boyd Tuttle was uh, one of your shipmates, right? He's the is he the president of uh, Digital Legends? That's right. Yes, he is. Yes, and he he has been a supporter, and he joined the ship in Carthage and sailed with us uh, up until Cadiz. So. And was that the first? So he was he on the? Who, were there any LDS people on the first voyage around Africa? There were. There were two, of which I didn't know they were LDS, and I didn't really, in, in all honesty, I wasn't really aware of the voyages of the 
LDS prophets of Lehi and Mulek. I didn't know anything about it. But, uh, and actually one of them, I, I didn't realize until this week that they were associated with the LDS. So that was Warren Aston. He did, oh, uh, really? Yeah, he, did a, he did a leg from Aden in the Yemen to Salala. And uh, I d had no idea that he was uh, LDS. And then um, we had a gentleman called Keith Johnson who joined us from my yacht uh, down, to, um, down to Mozambique. And he did say, he did tell me that, Philip, you, you don't realize what you're doing. This, this really is important to us. And I gradually started to understand the story a bit better. But, um, so uh, yes, we had those two people on board on the first journey. And then on the Atlantic journey, we had, um, Boyd Tuttle and two other LDS uh, followers, um, Doug Petty and his son Carson Petty. So, uh, yes, they participated and uh, took part in this historic uh, expedition. So, so you're not LDS. I'm not LDS. No. So, what do you think of this story? Is it, is it a crazy story? Of course, you're a crazy captain, so I guess it would all fit together, right? It all fits together. I mean. I've always said about my expeditions that I don't really mind who joins or helps as, and who we partner with as long as it's for a good reason. So, I, for example, I wouldn't accept any sponsorship from a tobacco company because I don't believe what they do is, 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 is honourable. But as long as it's for a good peaceful purpose, then I'm very happy to work with, with anyone. So, I, you know, I'm delighted to work with LDS and the Heartland Research Group because I think it's, you know, it's, it's only a positive thing and, um, and uh, it helps to bring the whole story of what we've been doing with the Phoenician sort of project overall to many, many more people. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be as well known. So. It's a sort of win-win situation, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, but I, I guess it would probably be safe to say you haven't become a believer in the Book of Mormon yet, or, or have you? No, I haven't become a, a sort of a convert yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure one or two people would like me to be a convert, but no, I haven't become a convert. But, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm open-minded about these things. I think it's a great story. And I think if people get comfort from it and uh, it helps in everyday life, then no, I haven't got a problem with it. Okay. Have you become familiar with the, I'm going to call it the geography wars uh, within uh, the Book of Mormon? Yeah, I've become uh, more recently aware of the sort of, what's yes, called the sort of geographical sort of debate uh, with regard to the, the two prophets and which way they may have reached uh, the promised land. Yes, I am I'm now aware of that. Uh, if you'd asked me two or three months ago, I wasn't really aware of it, but I am now more aware of that. Okay, because the, I would say probably the two most popular theories are the, the Heartland model, which you know, you've spent the last week here kind of learning about that a little bit, I'm, I'm sure. But there's also a Mesoamerican model 
And um, in that model, they believe that Lehi, instead of crossing the Atlantic Ocean, crossed the Pacific Ocean. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about Thor Heyerdahl and his, because he did some voyages across the Pacific, although they were from west to east, not east to west. Um, can you talk about the feasibility of traveling, and let's say from Salala, because I think both Mesoamerica and Heartlanders would agree pretty much every, that Lehi probably came to Salala. And the question is, does he go around Africa or did he hug the coast and then jet across the, the Pacific? What, what do you think about that? So, I mean, I obviously can't really comment about, you know, the religious aspects. But from what I understand, um, the voyage would probably have taken place in the autumn, sort of October time from Salala. Now, that, that's when we left, and the important point about that is if that's correct, then you'd have had the, the northeast monsoon blowing the wind down towards um, Mozambique and, 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 and around the Cape. Okay. So, therefore, that would lead me to think that the most likely, the easiest way to sail would have been on that uh, northeast monsoon. It, it reverts every six months so after six months you get the southwest monsoon that takes the, the winds from shall we say zanzibar up to oman um, and would have perhaps pushed them the other way but i think if you look at the journey across the indian ocean the other way uh, there are a couple of quite significant problems okay first problem is it's twice as far it's about 12,000 nautical miles, whereas the other one is going to be sort of six or 7,000 nautical miles. So that's, it's, and it's more challenging. There was a, a replica ship called the um, Jewel of Muscat, and they struggled even to get the boat to Singapore. They had ended up having it towed to Singapore because it's, it's quite difficult to navigate um, around the Straits of Malacca and through towards, shall we say, Hong Kong. And then you've got this vast expanse of thousands of miles across the Pacific, and you're faced with the trade winds in the, in the central belt. There's doldrums on the, on the equator, but either side you've got the east to west trade winds, and it's virtually impossible for a traditional square-rigged boat with a single sail to go against the trade winds. I mean, virtually impossible. Um, you know, there are some even modern yachts that have the triangular sails and that can point into the wind, you know, that would be considered going around the wrong way. As, as a sailor, we will say east to west is best. So if you're going to do a round the world voyage, you always go east to west. So it seems counterintuitive to think that uh, Lehigh could have gone across the Pacific from uh, west to east. Theoretically, you could have sailed from, say, Hong Kong all the way up to Japan and all the way around the top and that all down in the, the roaring 40s. But, you know, given you could have easily sailed down the coast of East Africa and around the Cape, and across to the Caribbean fairly quickly without too many problems. 
I, I sort of think it's, a, it's quite a stretch to think that that's a, a plausible theory. Just so the Atlantic would be much easier than the Pacific? The Atlantic would be much easier than the Pacific. Easier, uh, less time-consuming, quicker, uh, you know, following the currents. And, and the currents and winds, they haven't changed for thousands of years. I mean, right now, with climate change, you know, some of the storms are getting a bit more intense, but still the general, you know, currents and winds are in the same the same way. Right. So, so if you're going from Hong Kong, you're either going to have to go up through Japan and around Alaska and then down, or you're going to go the opposite way and you're going to come up through South America? Yeah, you'd have to sort of head down towards New Zealand and go down into the really, you know, what we call, well, what the sailors call the roaring 40s, the really rough weather. Um, so that South American area would be really tough sailing? Tough sailing, yeah. And then to get back up to Central America would be, uh, you know, there are there are currents and winds that would would do that, but it wouldn't be easy. wouldn't be wouldn't be plain sailing. Because I, you know, I was trying to do some research for this interview, um, trying to make the case. I'll I'll, I'll play mezzo for a minute, um, and it did look like there is an equatorial countercurrent that goes right across the equator. Um, it looked like, as you mentioned, the Alaskan area way or the, the Roaring Forties uh, were probably easier. But there was a countercurrent across the equator, and it does look like it ends up in Guatemala, um, possibly. Do you, th do you think that's a possibility or not? Uh, not really, because the thing about that is the, the, the currents, let's say at best, a current on average might give you three quarters of a knot, maybe if you're lucky, get one knot, uh, so you know, one mile per, per hour. But the winds against you will be pushing you two to three knots in the opposite direction. So although the current might be going one way, uh, the winds are gonna blow you back the other way anyway. And the wind's gonna be more powerful than the current? Yeah, so it's always wind, wind over current. Wind is always the dominant, uh, you know, vector, if you like. So, the, although these current, you might get that counter current going the other way, um, the winds or the doldrums are, are not going to help you. And the Phoenicians wouldn't have had a triangular sail to take advantage of those kinds of winds. That is true. Um, you know, we played around with with you know, the, the sail configuration. And, the, and theoretically, you can braille it to make, change the shape a little bit and point the boom into the wind. But when you do that, you, you have uh, a lot of, uh, f the, the foot of the sail is rolled up and the advantage you get from the triangular sort of sail bit is detracted by the drag of this other part of the sail that you've rolled up. So it's not an efficient sail. And it's not clear that uh, the Phoenicians really used the, the, uh, you know, the, the sail in that, that way. Mm -hmm. um, the Arabic Latin sail, the triangular sail, came much later. So I don't believe that that is really a... Um, so we tried it quite a lot, and it doesn't really work. I mean, sometimes you think you're you're going forward with a sort of 
uh, a, tri a little bit of a t towards a triangular sail, but actually you're not going forward, you're actually being pushed sideways. So I don't think that's plausible, really. Okay. I'm going to continue to play Team Mezzo for just a minute. Let's assume that they did follow the Atlantic Ocean then. Would it have been relatively easy, instead of going to Florida, to go to, say, Guatemala? Yeah, I think, um, you know, where we were, I mean, we ended up further south than I thought. Uh, so we ended up at Santo Domingo on the south side of the Dominican Republic. I thought we'd probably end up in maybe the American or British Virgin Islands, slightly further north, slightly nearer to, to, to Florida. But had we, had we wanted to, it would have been very easy for us to continue with the winds behind us uh, and to go on past the south of Cuba, you know, north of Jamaica and head into the Gulf of um, into the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. Not not a not a problem. So that. you could go anywhere within the Gulf. So Guatemala all the, all the way to Florida, well, and any point in there would be relatively easy. Within reason. So if you can imagine, you've got the wind immediately behind you, which is generally the way the winds come across. Say, at the at the point of say the Dominican Republic, you've then got a sort of an an arc, if you like, um, that you can sail from. So, you know, perhaps 45 degrees um, to the south and 45 degrees to the north. You know, and then maybe the winds will turn a little bit. And again, you've then got an arc. You can't sort of sail at 90 degrees to the wind, uh, but you can certainly sail at 45, 50 degrees to the wind. So that will give you a, an envelope where you could sail if you've got the wind behind you. So you've got some flexibility there. So how far, how far south? Is, is Guatemala feasible then? I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's not impossible. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, you've got that arc probably. where so, so you could probably get from, should we say, from Texas all the way to Guatemala, that kind of... You know, and depending where you want to go, mm -hmm. um, you, you could probably do that. So, okay, and then, of course, you ended up in Florida, and that was relatively easy. So so pretty much anywhere within the Gulf you could hit? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, your only constraints are going to be uh, food and water and right. fishing and, uh, you know, the, the mentality of the crew. What do we want to do? Do we want to find land? And then you may, they may be sailing along, and then see some birds flying in one direction and say, oh, well, maybe land's over there, that's where we're going to go. Or, no, let's just keep going. So, um, but yeah, you've got a certain amount of flexibility. Um, so what we did when we came across the Atlantic, because we didn't have a specific destination, we just kept a, the, the rudders fairly neutral. And, uh, and as I say, we ended up quite f further south than we thought we would, or than personally than I thought we would. But you've got that flexibility yeah interesting interesting <laughs> this also brings up the the story of the brother of jared are you familiar with that story at all has anybody told you about that no i'm not really familiar okay well i'm going to ask your uh since you're you're the semen expert here the sea expert um the story the brother of jared says they built these um Sounds kind of like a submarine. 
almost. Uh, two things like unto a dish. And they would have a hole that they could open to see if they were above water or not. Um, and of course, this would have taken place long before even Lehi, um, maybe a thousand years before. Can you imagine building any type of a, and it sounds like they just kind of floated, like uh, in, in the ocean, um, and it was really dark. Can you imagine building any kind of a ship like that? Almost a submarine kind of a thing where it would just kind of float and make it to America? Does that sound feasible at all? Especially a thousand years before Lehi. Well, I think um, there was a guy, um, I think in the 60s or the 1970s, um, who literally built himself a barrel, and I think he left from France or maybe Spain. And he built himself a barrel with a, with a hatch, and he just wanted to show that by that you could float across the Atlantic. And he did it. I mean, you know, I think it took him two or three months to do it. And he just lived in this barrel and it floated across. And there have been other things. So it's certainly possible to float across okay. uh, if you've got the perseverance and, and the like. I mean, who'd I mean, want to live in a barrel? But, I but guess who would want to live in a barrel? Yeah, and he, he did do it in a barrel. Um, and I'm sure it's all on, on the internet. Um, Oh, interesting. But so, theoretically, yeah. I mean, that's my argument for, like, why I think the Phoenicians could have been, the, you know, the first of the ancient sailors to do it because the winds and the currents will push you across. But of course, if you've got a nice big square sail that you can capture the wind, you're going to be going, you know, maybe three or four knots in terms of speed across the ocean. Whereas if you're floating, it comes back to the currents point of view. He's probably only going at three quarters of a knot um, across the ocean. So I, I wouldn't dismiss it, but it's, it would be quite a challenging way to cross the ocean. Well, yeah. certainly. Uh, and it does bring up the other idea. Um, you know, because I know John Sorensen, he's kind of the Mesoamerican expert. Um, he has documented, uh, well, you mentioned the Vikings, um, but it sounds like the Chinese and maybe the Japanese may have made uh, trips across uh, to America. Have you, are you familiar with those and do you, th do you think those are feasible? I think... Um, I believe there's a book called 1421 that the Chinese supposedly came to the Americas 70 years before Columbus. Yes, I think that book has been largely discredited. It's a sort of an exercise in creative writing, shall we say. Okay. Um, and the, the, you know, the starting point of the book is quite reasonable. You know, undoubtedly the Chinese did have these major ships and, and they certainly, in, I think I'm right in saying 3rd century BC, they got to East Africa because they got a giraffe and they took this giraffe back to Beijing. And there are images of this giraffe that they had in Beijing. So we know they did some, some significant voyages. Round trips, uh, even. Yeah, uh, round trips, and they, and they certainly traded with India, and they did that sort of uh, route uh, across the Indian Ocean. We, we know that. But anything more, much more than that is sort of speculation. Um, but they, they did have maritime power, but it was much... 
I mean, it was much later than we're talking about here. And their right. ships are a different kind. They're not uh, quite the square rigs that we've been talking about just now. So, but I wouldn't discount the fact that the Chinese could have got across, but it's a different kind of ship. And um, it, it is, I think it is possible that they might have come across to, towards California or something. Um, but I don't think it's comparable with um, an ancient Phoenician ship that Lehi might have sailed in. Well, yeah, I understand that. But um, so are you discounting that they came to America in 1421? Do you think you don't think that happened? I think the date is problematic. I think the whole 1421 sort of thesis has been pulled pulled apart. Um, I said the, the, the starting point is quite reasonable. It's, it's undoubtedly true that the Chinese were preeminent in Southeast Asia in sailing terms at that point. But this idea that uh, the Chinese were in the Caribbean and they were in Newfoundland and, you know, they went down to the Antarctic, it's, it's just, you know, a bit of a nonsense, really. Okay. And because uh, I was also looking at Japanese, there might have been some Japanese. Would it be feasible for them to go up, maybe up north, like you said, through the Aleutian Islands and maybe down? I'd be sort of open-minded about that. Yeah, I, I think you know the the Japanese character, and you know how determined they are. <laughs> I don't think you'd bet against them, but I I don't know whether there's any real evidence. But um, you know, it's it's um, possible. Okay. The other ocean we mentioned the Vikings a little bit. Do you, can you talk a little bit about them? When you know when they came to I guess Canada, right? Yeah, that's right. So I mean, I find the, the Viking story interesting and very interesting and relevant to um, the Phoenicians coming to the Americas. So you know, if you went back a hundred years ago, there were the stories of the Icelandic sagas. And they said in these stories that the Vikings came across a land um, to the west of Iceland and, uh, and that they found these lands, not just Greenland, but, but other lands to the west. And all the academics turned around and said, ah, oh, they're, just, they're just legends, they're just stories. There's no truth in it, but they're just stories that they told the grandchildren and stuff. And... Uh, of course, in the 1960s, they found this Viking settlement uh, in Newfoundland. And just in the last couple of years, uh, because of the way the archaeologists uh, documented and, and, uh, and looked after that site, they've been able to identify the exact year that that settlement was in existence. And it's 1021 AD in Newfoundland that the Vikings were there. But... What's interesting is, as I say, academics until the 1960s completely dismissed the possibility that the Vikings could have made it to North America. So it's now established as fact. So you go through this cycle of skepticism, grudging acceptance, and then, then it becomes mainstream. So the Vikings theory is now mainstream accepted as fact. Where we are with the Phoenicians bit is we are still at this sort of... We're in the 1960s? Yeah, we're in the 1960s. We're still a bit sceptical. We're getting a little bit more open-minded. Maybe we, maybe there is a bit more evidence now, uh, but we're not... We haven't accepted. We haven't got, quite got the, the final bit. So hence my comment earlier. You know, it may be another 10 or 20 years before we it becomes 
accepted wisdom. You know? Or if we're going from the 60s, maybe 60 years, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it could be, yeah, if we're at the 60s. But things are speeding up in terms of archaeological discoveries and science. So, so the Phoenicians were a Semitic people. Do we have any idea, or were they Hebrew-speaking, or do, do, you, do you know anything about that? Um, I think closely correlated, Semitic, yes, closely correlated with the Hebrew, but I'm I not... guess Arabs, Arabic is kind of a Semitic language too, or am I wrong on that? I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn, I'm not sure. I know there's some Semitic origins in... in yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, and I think so for the for the Phoenicians too. Um, but uh, you know, you have to be one of these um, sort of linguists or language experts because obviously our modern day alphabet is derived from um, from the Phoenician alphabet, right. but where it links in with the you know the Hebrew and the like. But I do know a lot of a lot of commentators. Um, look at it as as the, almost the same, you know, Phoenician and Hebrew, and I guess they look at the Phoenician alphabet and say, well, actually, it's it's, it's high, you know, highly correlated with the the he Hebrew. Okay. So. All right, I'm trying to remember. Um, what else do we need to know about the Phoenicia ship or your, your voyage? Well. Um, I guess if people want to learn more about the Phoenician ship, we've got the books available at uh, Atlantic BC. Also, there's a documentary of the first voyage. That's on Phoenicia.rocks, which is uh, the website for um, the Heartland Research Group and the plans for the Phoenician Ship Museum uh, on, on the Mississippi. So, um, you know, there's lots more information there and you can download that uh, documentary there. You can go to Atlantic BC and, and, and uh, AtlanticBC.net for, for ordering books and the like. So, um, yeah, we just want to try and get this story out and told, and we'll be holding sort of events in the future. Volunteers uh, can come and help with the reconstruction of the Phoenician ship at Montrose on the, uh, on the Mississippi in the summer, and... Um, They'll be supported with accommodation and the like. So, um, yeah, everybody's welcome to help uh, in the project. Are you kind of supervising the reconstruction of your ship, making sure they do it right? I'm not in charge, but I, you know, I will give my opinion if I'm, if I'm asked sort of thing. So, um, but no, the guys are doing a great job and they're well on the way to getting, you know, that first half uh, rebuilt. And uh, they're doing a great job in putting it back together. And uh, later in the spring, the, the second container uh, with the, the other half of the ship will, will come back and uh, probably then take uh, maybe up to a year after that for it to be comp completed. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be brilliant once it's, once it's done. But it's, just, it's also just brilliant to be able to see the work in progress and to visit it and to, to see what's going on there. All right. Well, I think I'm out of questions, but I think, uh, you know, what you've done is amazing. I, I feel like uh, <laughs> Lehigh meets Columbus. Is that, is that what we should call you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yes, yeah. Are you comfortable being associated with the Book of Mormon? 
Yeah, as I said, um, I think as long as um, the voyage is used for good purposes and, uh, uh, you know, and for po positive purposes in people's lives, yeah, I'm happy, happy with that. Okay. Well, great. Well, Captain Philip Beale, can we call you Captain? You can. Well, I'm, you know, the captain of the Phoenicia and, uh, <laughs> pro you know, project director. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's... Um, if you want to that. Or Admiral, is that better? Or uh... Yeah, I think Admiral of the Seas is, is quite a nice title, isn't there it? There you yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Admiral Philip Beale, I appreciate you so much for being here on Gospel Tangents. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for your time. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Captain Philip Beale. Philip, thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking with me. Um, it was a really, really fun conversation. So I'd also recommend if you'd like to uh, check out his book, Atlantic BC. It's available on his website as well as on Amazon. And uh, luckily, I've got an autographed copy from Philip. So anyway, I appreciate that. In our next conversation, we're going to talk to a couple of his crew members, Vera and Yuri Sonata from Brazil. When we look at each other, we, we're feeling scared about that. We know something happened. And we look again, come out, we can see Philip comes out and say, wow, it's good, but it's not good. It's just that time the sails ripped in the middle. Right. It's like we have a two sails. It's really, really scared. What are you going to do? Because we know we need to turn the boat for to, to, to put the horse or the nose of the ship to the wind for put down. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.